Was it because I was so much shorter than Brother Morford? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter what I said, it was short. <laughs> I'll make up for all tonight. No, no, not quite. <clears throat> Although I will maybe be a little bit longer tonight. I honestly believe I've actually shared this exact message from this pulpit. But according to my notes, it doesn't say I have. I try to if I've preached a sermon to write down where I've preached it. But I'm sitting here looking at it going, I know I've preached this. In 2012, I've got a note and it doesn't say what church. (laughs) And for some reason, it seems like here. But yesterday, I felt like this was what I was supposed to share to try to kind of dovetail into this morning's sermon. Our scripture reading is going to be found, once again, in the book of John, the first chapter. I have something I want to read beforehand, if that's okay. I have it on my tablet. Has anyone here ever realized that you switch terms? You talk about something and you start interchanging terms and you know they mean something different, but you you use them interchangeably. And that's going to happen tonight, and so I want to share a little something. The love of God and the grace of God. The two are ultimately inseparable. This This is a preface to the sermon, okay? So this is food for thought. But the idea of grace to me forms the greatest expression of God's love of because of what it encompasses. Grace for me brings love into the story of the gospel while properly accounting for justice, because God is equal parts love and justice, which is why sin so separates us from him. To speak only of or even solely introduce God as love is to facilitate an ego Christianity that sees God only for the benefits that he brings us. Without the proper understanding of grace, John 3.16 itself holds no real meaning to us, or at least weakens the meaning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son is not only non-essential to the thinking of the non-believer, but is a bad plan altogether. Because why would an all-powerful God allow such a situation in the first place? And why is sending his Son such evidence of love? Why not simply forget and for- forgive and forget? These questions are met with dismal answers without the mention of grace. Love on its own, left undefined, is not powerful enough to change the heart. Because love is one of those slippy words that we bring our, pre- bring our suppositions to it when we define it. But grace, amazing grace, takes the powerful nature of love to the next level. Level, Grace is the width and depth and breadth of love reaching out, rippling across the pond of time to reach the hearts of the lost and searching. Grace is the freeing element of love. It's God's best play. It's the complete character of God on full display in all its justice and mercy, which are two opposing ideas, mind you. It's the grace of God that fuels my love for him and fuels my service in his ministry. Grace is the way to introduce God to the world because grace frames love in such a fashion that it reveals God's character more fully to all who are willing to hear it. So, that's something to keep in mind for a little bit later. First, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But... As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I mentioned this verse this morning. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Tonight, what I would like to speak on for a title is The Absurdity of the Gospel. The absurdity of the Gospel is this, that God left the splendor of heaven and went through all the stages of life from the womb to death, from having everything to being dependent and being dependent upon no one to being totally dependent upon a young teenage girl for his every need, from the robes of glory to swaddling clothes and dirty diapers, from walking on streets of gold to learning how to crawl on dirt floors, falling multiple times while trying to take his first steps, from God the Creator to man and all that that entails, the hardships of life with smashed fingers, stubbed toes, scraped knees, hard heavy labor, blistering heat, biting cold, and the pains of hunger that only comes from days of not eating, to nights of sleeplessness, and times of pure exhaustion, from being the great physician to maybe even being sick. The absurdity of the gospel is that God suffered pain of betrayal from one of his closest friends, rejection by his own family and those that he grew up with, loss of close friends and maybe family, physical injury, a beating that would kill most, Thorns jammed into his head, hair pulled out by its roots, spikes going through the hands and feet, the pain of torture that causes death. All because of his love for you. That is the absurdity of the gospel. Now, I don't know how many of you like to read Max Lucado. Anyone here read any Max Lucado? So you know you've heard this, but I think it bears repeating. This is an actual conversation. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to paraphrase it. The one posing the questions was puzzled. His thick eyebrows furrowed in doubt. His eyes squinted in caution. Though there were places to set, he opted not to do so. He preferred to stand safely behind the crowd, unsure, yet intrigued at what he was hearing. Throughout the lecture, he had listened intently, occasionally uncrossing his arms to stroke his whiskered chin. Now, however, he stood upright, punching the air with his finger, As he queried, he looked as though he'd walked down from the adjacent Colorado mountains, stocking hat, down vest, nylon leggings, and hiking boots. And he sounded as though he honestly didn't know if the story he was hearing was a mountain legend or the gospel truth. You mean to tell me God became a baby and that he was born in a sheep stable? Yes, 
That's what I meant to say, responded the lecturer. And then after becoming a baby, he was raised in a blue-collar home. He never wrote any books or held any offices, yet he called himself the Son of God. That's right. The lecturer who was being questioned was Landon Sanders, the voice of Heartbeat Radio Program. And Max Kuda says he had never held, heard anyone tell the story of the Nazarene like Landon Sanders. Once again, a question. He never traveled outside of his own country, never studied at a university, never lived in a palace, yet asked to be regarded as the creator of the universe? That's correct. Max Lucado says this, I was a bit unnerved at the dialogue. I was fresh out of college, gung-ho, enthusiastic. As a volunteer helper in a lecture series, I had come with memorized verses and responses loaded in my chamber of my evangelistic six-shooter. However, I came prepared to defend a lifestyle, not a savior. I was ready to argue morality, doctrine, heaven, and hell. I wasn't ready to argue a man. Jesus has always been someone I accepted. These questions were too aggressive for my virgin faith. Once again, to the questions. And this crucifixion story. He was betrayed by his own people. No followers came to his defense. And he was executed like a common, common junkyard thief. That's pretty much the gist of it. The authenticity of the questionnaire didn't allow you to regard him as a cynic or dismiss him as a show-off. To the contrary, he seemed nervous about commanding such attention. His awkwardness betrayed his inexperience in public speaking, but his desire to know was just an ounce or two heavier than his discomfort. So he continued. And after the killing, he was buried in a borrowed grave? Yes. He had no grave of his own, nor money with to purchase one. The honesty of the dialogue kept the audience spellbound. I realized I was witnessing one of those rare times when two people are willing to question the holy. Here are two men standing on opposite sides of a deep chasm, one asking the other if the bridge that stretched between them could actually be trusted. There was a hint of emotion in the student's voice as he carefully worded the next question. And according to what's written, after three days he was resurrected and made appearances to over 500 people? Yes, and all this was to prove that God still loves his people and provides us a way to return to him? Right. I knew which question was coming next. Everyone in the room knew it. It could have gone without being asked. And in my heart of hearts, I was hoping that it wouldn't be asked, but it was. Doesn't that all sound rather... And he paused for a second, searching for the right adjective. Doesn't that all sound rather absurd? All heads turned in perfect sync and looked at Landon. All the heads, that is, except mine. My head was spinning as I was forced to look at Jesus from a new angle. Christianity? Absurd? Jesus on a cross? Absurd? The incarnation? Absurd? The resurrection? Absurd? My Sunday school Jesus had been taken down from the flannel board. Landon's response was simple. Yes. Yes, I suppose it does sound absurd, doesn't it? I didn't like that answer. I didn't like it at all. Tell the fellow how it made sense. Diagram the dispensations, present fulfilled prophecies. Explain the fulfillment of the old law, the covenant, reconciliation, redemption. Sure, it made sense. Don't let him describe God's actions as absurd. That's kind of how I felt the first time I read that. 
honestly. Then it began to dawn on me, what God did make sense. It makes sense that Jesus would be our sacrifice because a sacrifice was needed to justify man's presence before God. It makes sense that God would use the old law to tutor Israel on their need of grace. It makes sense that Jesus would be our high priest. What God did makes sense. It can be taught, charted, and put in books on systematic theology. However, why God did it is absolutely absurd. When one leaves the logic and method and examines the motive, the carefully stacked blocks of logic begin to tumble. That type of love is not and will never be logical. It can't be neatly outlined in a sermon or explained in a term paper. Think about it. For thousands of years, using his wit and charm, us, man, has tried to be friends with God. And for thousands of years, we have let God down more than he has lifted him up. He's done the very thing he promised not to do. It's a fiasco. Even the holiest of heroes sometimes forgot whose side they were on. Some scenarios in the Bible look more like the adventures of Sinbad the Sailor than stories for a vacation Bible school. Look at the characters. Aaron, right-hand man to Moses. Witness of the plagues, member of the Red Sea Expedition, Riverbed Expedition, if you want to call it that, the holy high priest of God. But if he was so saintly, what was he doing leading the Israelites in fireside aerobics in front of a golden calf? The sons of Jacob, the fathers of the tribes of Israel, great-grandsons of Abraham, yet they were so special. Why were they gagging their younger brother and sending him to Egypt? David, a man after God's own heart, the king's king, the giant slayer and songwriter. He's also the guy whose glasses got steamy as a result from a bath on the roof, and unfortunately the water wasn't his and neither was the woman he was watching. Samson, swooning on Delilah's couch, drunk with wine, perfume, soft lights. He's thinking she's putting on something more comfortable, and she's thinking, I know I put these shears in here somewhere. Adam, adorned in fig leaves, the stains of forbidden fruit. Moses, throwing a staff in a temper tantrum. King Saul, looking into a crystal ball for the will of God. Noah, drunk and naked in his own tent. And the list goes on. These are the chosen ones of God? This is the royal lineage of the king? Are these the ones that God wants to carry out his mission? It's easy to see the absurdity. Why didn't he give up? Why didn't you just let the globe spin off its axis? Even after generations of people have spit on his face, he still loved them. After a nation, nation of chosen ones had stripped him naked and ripped his incarnated flesh, he still died for them. And even today, after billions of people have chosen to prostitute themselves to the pimps of power, fame, and wealth, he still waits for them. It is inexplicable. It doesn't have a drop of logic or a thread of rationality, and yet it is that very irrationality that gives the gospel its greatest defense, for only God could love like that. That is the absurdity of the gospel, God's grace. The Word was made flesh. That seems absurd to me, to the world, but that's grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. 
Because no one could ever do anything good enough to merit God's mercy. We can't. Still, God's grace is made available, and it has some amazing characteristics I want to take a moment to look at. First of, God's grace loves us unconditionally. Despite our mistakes, our shortcomings, our failures, our rebelliousness, our lies, and our inconsistencies. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, psychology today does not define love in those terms because love is not conditional to them. Because, you know, if you hurt them, or you go on and on, but that's not God. God's not psychology today. God's love is unconditional. We can hurt him, we can spit on him, we can treat him however we want, and he still loves us. That does not change. Thank God for that. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. This love, this grace is so amazing and uncomprehendable. However, I find it even more amazing. It's not only does it love us unconditionally, but it also will forgive us entirely. Is forgiveness very easy, folks? No. Oh, we can say it, but to do it. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Folks, I don't think I can do it. Honestly. Hopefully, if at that time it was to ever have to happen in my life, that God would give me the grace that I need to be able to do that. But honestly, just to say in my own self, there's no way to be able to forgive entirely like that. And something like that. But he does. Look at that. David, as I mentioned, he's an adulterer, a murderer. But what happened? The Lord sent the prophet. The prophet told him the story, and David saw his sin and went before the Lord and said, Before thee and thee only have I sinned. And he repented. And what did God do? He forgave him. The thief on the cross forgiven. What could the thief give back to God? Zilch. He's dying. He has nothing to give God. All we know is he was a thief. That's all we know. We have no clue what his life was elsewise. It could have been a one-time deal that he did. He could have had a life of crime for all we know. He had nothing to give to God, and yet God forgave him entirely. When we forgive someone, we want stuff out of it, don't we? And I don't see God getting anything out of that right there, and he did it. Think of people that you know. Think of yourself. God is willing to forgive or has forgiven you entirely. What did you even have to offer him? A life ruined by sin, brokenness, all of our problems, our failures, 
I mean, I've got some strong points, but I've got a whole lot of weak points. And I know we're all the same in that. We have some points we say, well, yeah, we actually have a little something we might be able to give here. But look at how horrible my life is elsewise. What do I have to give? And God is still willing to forgive us, even though when we have nothing, we can really even offer him back. No matter how bad we've messed up, how bad we've blown it, he has so much forgiveness for us. I think of some, some people that I went to college with. I have a friend that one day she got in trouble at school because her and I cooked together, and she was one of those girls that wear skirts to her ankle. Well, she, and that way she could get by without wearing pantyhose because no one ever saw the fact she didn't have them on. And we were cooking. Her and I cooked together. Every, well, not every weekend, but most weekends, every other weekend or something, we were the cooks for Pinview Bible Institute. And she got in trouble because the dorm dean came in and she was sitting down and her skirt was higher and they saw a tattoo on her leg. And you could see it because the pantyhose didn't mute it. And she told me, she said, you want to know how I got that tattoo? I was passed out at a party in high school on the floor and they tattooed me. She had nothing to offer God with the way her life was. Her family did not know God. And God's grace reached down to her and forgave her. She was going there to be trained for ministry so she could do something for the Lord. There was one guy that was on fire for God, and you hear his story, same thing. Family doesn't, no one in his family serves God. But he had a friend from high school whose family was Christian. They invited him to church. He was a party animal. He got saved just a little bit before he headed off to college, and man, was he on a little fireball. God had forgiven him. His life was ruined, messed up, drugs, you name it. And God, what'd he do? He forgave him entirely. It doesn't matter if you've went out into what we call deep sin or not, because sin is sin, and it separates us from God. Whether it was lying, whether it was going off and killing someone, that does not change what sin is. Sin still separates us, and God's grace can forgive us entirely from it. That song that I started earlier says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Why? Because of God's grace. We have ministers in our denomination who are former drug acts. We have friends and family who have, done, who have went off the deep end, so to speak. But God will and does forgive entirely. One other thing I'd like to look at, though, is God's grace does more than just love us unconditionally and forgive us. It can keep us. Isaiah 26.3 says, That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. And one of my favorite verses is 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Noah built an ark. Right? He did. What if he would have quit partway through? What do you think would have happened? He would have drowned. But he kept at it. And guess what? Because he did his part and kept at it, God did his part and kept him, correct? What about the three Hebrew children, as we call them? What if they would have decided to kneel that day instead of standing? Would we have ever heard about them? No. 
But they stood their ground, they did what God said, and God kept them when the trial came. He was with them, and they literally went through the fire and were fine. What about Daniel in the lion's den? What if on the way to the lion's den, Daniel said, okay, okay, forget it. I'll do what you want. It would have been too late at that point. And if he would have quit then, do you think God would have kept him when he threw him when they got thrown in? I don't think so. But God kept Daniel. Through all these, no matter what they were going through, situations that were so incomprehensible upon what man could do to solve the problem, God kept him and was with them. What about you? You know in your own life those times that things have just went haywire. Your life has been a wreck and you know it, but God's grace has kept you and been with you the whole time. God's grace is a free gift, available for all. Done for you, done for me. God loves you, God loves me. He wants to forgive us, keep us. But he leaves it up to us. This statement, when I read first time I read it, really got me. And I hope it always continues to get me. There's only one thing more absurd than the free gift of God. And that is our stubborn unwillingness to receive it. You know, God has done so much for me. He's done so much for us. And yet sometimes we just don't, we're not willing to take what he's trying to give us. Or God asks a little something of us and it seems to be such a huge deal to us. He says, I've forgiven you. Would you tell someone else about my love? And oh, that's just too much. And he keeps holding out these gifts that he wants for us to take. And we're so stubborn and unwilling to take it. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? I don't know each one of you very, you know, very, very personally. Obviously, we know each other by name. I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. I mean, yes, we can talk and say hi and catch up on, but the deep, intimate details, no, we wouldn't share. So I don't know where you're standing right now in your walk in life with God. That's between you and Him. But I'll be honest, there's times that stuff is just not easy. I'm human. I struggle. I get down. I get discouraged. There's times I fight trials and temptations. And I'm so thankful that God's grace is there to be with me in every moment of the day. It doesn't leave me when stuff gets tough. He doesn't say, figure this out on your own. But He's there with me. And as long as I do my part in keeping my little hand in God's big hand, he's always done his part. And folks, I believe he does more than just his part.
if you understand what I'm saying. I had a college professor that put it this way. He said, some of you have heard that if you take a step towards God, he'll take two towards you, or whatever the saying is. He said, I don't believe that's so. He said, I believe that if you as much even wiggle, God comes running all the way to you. And folks, when times get rough, when stuff isn't going our way, when we're struggling with things, God's grace doesn't change a bit. It's right there. It's still loving us. It still forgives us, and it can still keep us. All we have to do is be willing to receive it. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your great grace. I ask that you'll be with us as we all go our separate ways. You know, the different places we'll go this week, that you will be with us and keep your hand upon us and help us to, to continue to serve you and follow you and live in that grace. Not to take advantage of it, but to relish in the fact that you love us that much. Thank you for all that you do. In your precious name we pray. Amen.